so we have two options now. Oh, we have other, I have other texts that we could do. I have several other texts actually that we could do. You guys want to do another text together or do you want to split up in your groups to work on your own big ideas, FCF and IRE? You want to do another one as an example first or no? Or do you feel like you kind of got it? One more, okay. Narrative or epistle? What do you want to do? Okay. He said it, he said it first. I he said it first. Ruth won. So talk about this in your groups. What's the big idea? What's the FCF? What's the IRE in Ruth chapter one? Sounds good. Um, so, so what do you think the big idea of this text is? I love to hear from each group. I want to hear from, from each group. What's the big idea? So we have a, a couple idea. We have a couple examples of unfaithfulness, right? We have Elimelech's unfaithfulness that leads him away from the promised land to Moab. Naomi's unfaithfulness that leads her to think God is against her. So we have a, we have some good ideas there. But let's let's try to narrow it down to a single sentence. We had to maybe even encompasses both of those. Right? Maybe something that. It encompasses both those unfaithfulnesses. Yeah, Emmanuel. Naomi, what, God? <laughs> Naomi loses commitment to God? James, can you interpret? <laughs> commits herself to God and Naomi. Ruth commits herself to God and Naomi? Yes. Okay. I think that's true. I think that's true. Uh, but, but would that be... Uh, what the big idea should do is summarize the entire chapter. I think that summarizes a short section of, of it. But it certainly doesn't summarize verses 1 through 6, even verse 7 or 8. 
it, it only summarizes namely our Ruth's response to Naomi. We're looking for something that kind of summarizes the whole chapter. That's certainly something that happens in the chapter. You're describing something that happens in it, but I don't think it's the big idea of the entire chapter. Okay. I, uh huh. Ruth is faithful, so there's something uh-huh. like God's faithfulness through difficult circumstances, something like that. Yes, yes. I, I, I think you're right. So once we get to difficult circumstances, right? Difficult circumstances. That that is true of the Naomi story. That's true of the root of the Ruth story. That's true of the Elimelech story. All of them are in difficult circumstances, right? So I, that's true of when she comes home to Bethlehem. That's true of every point in the text. We could say all of these are different difficult circumstances. I, I like the idea of God's faithfulness in difficult circumstances. Um, and, and ultimately, it's his faithfulness to, yeah, um, a, a Yeah, so I think verse 6 is an example. God has visited his people and given them bread, and Naomi hears about that. So that's an example of God's faithfulness, even to Naomi when she thinks that God's not being faithful. And then lastly, they come. That the, the last ray of hope is that they come home for the barley harvest. Right, and that I think that shows that God has been faithful through all of this, the fact that, that they come home just at the right time. God... God caused it that they would hear of the bread and God brought them home just at, at the time to give them exactly what they needed. And we can say ultimately that God brought Naomi away so he could bring her back with Ruth so that Christ could be born. Can we say that uh, the God is the God of uh, Exodus? Uh, one, two, Sorry, can you say that again? Yeah, the first thing you said, God is the God of what? What was it you said? Exodus. Oh, the God of Exodus. Yeah, I, I think I think there's definitely the theme of Exodus and reverse Exodus happening here. Let me like undoes the Exodus. I, I I think we could probably summarize the big idea like this. This is how I would summarize it. God often uses painful and bitter circumstances to work his pleasant and satisfying purposes. And and there I'm playing on the I'm playing with the the name change that Naomi has, right? God often uses painful and bitter circumstances to work his pleasant and satisfying purposes. I, that's true of that's true of the famine, that's true of the death of the children and the husband, that's true of Naomi coming back and the pressure from her friends. In all of those, God is using painful and bitter circumstances to work His pleasant purposes. 
And what's true of all of our characters in the, in the negative, the FCF, is when life gets hard, it's easy to lose trust in God. Elimelech lost trust in God. Orpah lost trust in God. Naomi lost trust in God. When life gets hard, it's easy to lose trust in God. So what might be a, a, an IRE based on all that? Yeah, yeah, I, that, that's a truth. That's a truth claim. Let, let's word that in a way that kind of prompts us towards God, towards responding to God, towards responding in faithfulness, something like that. When life gets hard, we should trust God, even when life gets hard. Even, yeah, I think even when life gets hard, we should trust God. I think more specifically in this text, it's we're we're faced with characters that don't. It's not just that life is hard, but we, they don't know what God is doing. They can't see what God is doing. Um, so I think we could say it like this: God's kind and gracious disposition towards us prompts us to trust God, even when we can't understand what He's doing. So God is kind and gracious, and we get that from the barley harvest. We get that from verse 6, and we get that from the rest of Ruth, for sure. God has not stopped to be kind, stopped being kind. God has not stopped being gracious. He's still the giver of all of those good gifts, even though Naomi doesn't believe it. And because God is that way, we must trust him, even when we don't understand what he's doing. That's where Naomi fails, right? That's where Orpah fails. That's where Elimelech fails. They, they don't understand what God could be doing in all of this. Yeah, A.B. So I, I was having a hard time because I couldn't find a, 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 a role model or like something that I can, oh, they did good on this one. I, I thought Naomi and her husband, they, they all did bad. But I, I think from the way you took it, is it fair to say that preposition statement could be the opposite of, or it's be like what not to do. Like, does that make sense? You mean, yeah, the, you're talking about the IRE? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. CF really serves as the negative example, like what not to do, and the IRE serves as the positive example, what to do, if you want to put it simply like that. But the, the FCF is what we share in common with the original audience. The common temptation, the common struggle, right? Once we understand why the text was written, what's the common struggle between us and them? And then the IRE prompts us to ask, well, what is this text push? How is this text pushing us towards further faithfulness? Or what is this? Right? If you want to think about it, like there's a, a massive feast set before you. And this text is that feast. I want you to dive in and experience the good of this text. The, the IRE is, is that good of the text that you're invited to, to share in. So the FCF might come in with, with uh, side, and the IRE might come in with the positive side. The FCF would, would tell you to stop doing something, and the IRE would say, instead, instead this is what faithfulness looks like. Okay, so se several of you have been texting me, which is great. Anyone want to share their text and then their uh, 
their big idea. Faisal just texted me. He's very excited to preach after that 30 minutes. That's great. That's what, I, that's what this does, is it? it Get your soul ready for it. Yeah, uh, Emmanuel. What, which text are you doing? Okay. The heart of God is compassionate and able to forgive us. Or the, I, I think that's great. The heart of God is compassionate and able to forgive us. I, I think that certainly that encompasses the idea of the son who is far away, even the son who's near, right? Because the father's heart for the son who's near is also the, the same compassionate heart. He just doesn't take advantage of it. Uh, I think that's good. Good. And what's your, what's your IRE and your um, FCF? We forget that God is God. We think that God is like us. I think, I think, I think that's a true statement, right? It's a true statement that we think that God is like us. I'm not sure that that's what's motivating this text. Because if you look back at the beginning What's prompting this parable is the tax collectors and sinners saying, Jesus, you shouldn't eat with these kinds of people, right? Or, or maybe, you're, maybe you're saying the same thing. It's just maybe a little bit broad. I'm not sure. But I, I might say something like, you know, the, the merciful and compassionate heart of God. God, God is merciful and compassionate towards the wayward towards the sinful, something like that. The sinful. Um, Yeah, I think, I think you can address that in the sermon. Um, I'm just not sure if that deserves a spot that prominent, like the FCF. May, maybe it does. Maybe it does, and I'd, I'd be happy to, if you're convinced, to let you go with it. My, my inclination, though, would be something about how we, we make, we tend to presume that God is stingy with his mercy, or we tend to presume that only certain kinds of people deserve God's mercy, or we, we tend to presume that our right actions provoke God's mercy. Actually, it's our, our sinfulness that provokes God's mercy in this text, and that's the lesson that they're, that they're learning. Um, but, but an application point from that could be, do we think that because we think God is just like us? Um, or maybe if you were able to spell that out in a way that was, that was faithful to the, 
to what the text is addressing. You know, I think I think that that's a really good idea for sure. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's good. That's good, though, Emmanuel. God desires to have a father-son relationship with us. I think. I think that's also getting. I think that's also getting close to it. But in this text, he's already a father, right? And that's what provokes his compassion. I think what's especially in view is that God is compassionate. God is compassionate not towards those who deserve it or think they deserve it, but towards those we would not expect would deserve it. God, God's compassion is especially seen. God's compassion is especially felt. Something like that towards, towards those we, we tend to think are far too far off. That can include ourselves even, but um, I, think, I think it's something like that. So I think you're getting really close. I would keep pressing at it. And I would just encourage you to try to, to try to factor in verses one and two and what, what Jesus is, Jesus is responding to the Pharisees who say, this man eats with tax collectors and sinners. How can this be? And his response is, do you realize that you're the older brother? You're the older brother and you don't think that God can show mercy to whomever he wills. I would just encourage you to, to try to incorporate something more like that in it. But, but it sounds good. I think, you're, I think you're going along right thinking about the text. And I think a good application point is God is not like us. Yeah, Sammy. Uh, we naturally right. don't accept the grace of Christ. We naturally don't accept the grace of Christ. Yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, because they're, they're turning to another gospel, a gospel that requires works and not resting in grace. Yeah, I, I, think, that's, I think that's helpful. Uh, and what's your IRE? Uh, God, God is the one who saves us first, and God is the one who keeps us in grace. Yeah, I think I think that the text. I think your your big idea is, is really good. We we tend to follow. We tend to believe false gospels. Or I forget I forget exactly how you said it, but I remember thinking your your big idea was good. I would try to incorporate the idea of false teachers in there. Um, like something like something like uh, holding fast to the true gospel in the midst of false teaching, and then. At the end, he talks about, I mean, he, he's specifically applying it to his own preaching, right? He's not going to preach a false gospel because he's trying to please God, not man. So I, I might try to, to incorporate something about seeking the approval of Christ demands that we stay faithful to the gospel message. Some, does that make sense? Something like that? Maybe um, ask Oh yeah, I, I was saying. I, I think if you include incorporate verse ten, Paul, Paul is talking about his own ministry here, and I, I think it'd be something like, um, something like seeking seeking the approval of Christ demands gospel fidelity. 
something like that. Paul, Paul, Paul's point is that he's not going to abandon the gospel because he's more concerned with pleasing God instead of men. Does that make sense? So I think, I think you're really, really close. I would just try to figure out a way to incorporate. I, I think you said something like we're, we're, we pro, we're prone to believe false gospels or we're, we're prone to not rest in grace, something like that. I think that's right. The Galatians are tempted to believe a false gospel because they think that grace is too good to be true, maybe even, or there's, there's pressure to preach a false gospel. But Paul, Paul, because Paul is faithful to Christ, he will be faithful to the gospel. Something like that. I think you're really close. Keep, keep working at it. Maybe one or two more? Yeah, Avi. Uh, so mine is, uh, like I said, from Malachi. But now, upon your uh, direction, I have incorporated verse 17 of the previous chapter as well, as the ESV puts it in what break could be. So I'm going to speak from uh, chapter 2, starting from verse 17 through chapter 3, verse 14. So what uh, what my FCF fallen condition focus is that we can't please God in our obedience and also our obedience is missing. And just simply put, we just don't get it. I think there's a kind of an argument that goes where um, but then you say how did we offend God? And there's always people not getting how they even offended him. So uh, that would be the <clears throat> fallen condition that um, <clears throat> needs to be uh, redeemed. Um, and the intended redemptive effect is that uh, God coming in judgment and purification and in that time where no one can stand and actually on the verse 17 where I incorporated it uh, the last uh, question is that where is God where is the God of justice and they say stuff like oh God just delights in evil and actually that's just the most offensive things people can say about God so uh, but God will come in judgment and when he, co he comes Nobody can stand it. Uh, nobody can, uh, is safe. Everybody is um, getting what they have coming towards them, uh, except those whom he pur uh, purifies and worked, uh, works uh, that are going to be able to uh, present an acceptable offering. Because most of it is about God being wronged. He's kind of accusing Israelites, Jerusalem, uh, for not giving him the right offering, maybe the, the, um, having a vow and not, not keeping it, you know, bringing a blemished uh, offering, and having the wrong heart, and, and all the other uh, problems. And so unless they bring in an acceptable sacrifice, they can't. And, uh, and um, verse uh, 1 of chapter 3 says, Behold, I was in the messenger in. That is just, a, I think, a, a direct um, what we see in Matthew 11 and uh, Mark 11, where it speaks about uh, the, the, this messenger uh, that prepares a way before me is uh, John the Baptist, preparing a way for the Lord. And when the Lord Jesus Christ comes and he purifies, uh, nobody can stand it. 
So um, then my prepositional statement, uh, I couldn't figure it out well, but I was thinking more along those lines. God sanctifies us so we can bring an acceptable sacrifice. Something along those lines. And then just, um, and I, th I think at the end, um, then the offering of Jude and Jerusalem would be pleasing to the Lord and um, days of old and as in former years. I don't get what that means, former years. Is it meaning like the, uh, in how Israelites were purified through uh, passing through the, the Red Sea? Uh, I think there's a, a typology that, that, was, uh, that Paul mentioned. Is that what it's, I, I think I need to do more? Yeah, I think th this is a very hard text. This is a very hard text. Um, I I think, right, so the the answer is that God is the refiner of his people. And the result of the refining is that they bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. So, right, they, they become righteous through the refining process. I think, and this is a very difficult, this is a very, very difficult text. This is very hard. Um, but I think, I think you're right that verses, of course, verses three and four are the hope. And I think that verse three is the process of the hope. I, I, think, I think here he's just saying they, they, will be, they will be pleasing to me like they were before. Right? They, they were pleasing to me before. They will be pleasing to me once again when the refining process comes. I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's sanctification. It, yeah, it, I mean, the, when we bring this into a new covenant context, I'm not sure I would say that sanctification makes our sacrifices acceptable. It would be, it, I, I might, I would probably, I would probably, again, this is a very difficult text. I think I would probably point it towards justification. That when when God comes, yeah. So when God comes in Christ, um, He purifies His people, with the result that they bring acceptable sacrifices before the Lord. Again, this is a very difficult text, and I, I've, I've never studied this one in depth to preach it before. I mean, I've read it a few times, certainly, but never. To preach it like this, I. But I think I think what you were hitting at when you talked about verse three is getting at it. So I would work on on nailing down that kind of those three sentences. Um, but yeah, you're. I think I think you're getting there. I would do a lot of reading, a lot of studying. This this will probably be the hardest text that anyone. I think this is the hardest text that anyone's preaching, for sure. So you've got a lot of studying ahead of yourself. But I think you're getting on to something. Yeah, or want to talk about their idea? It's okay if you do. It's okay if we're behind. Well, I think we heard from everyone except for Mikey, Brian, and James. So if you guys are fine with moving on, we'll move on. Yeah, I was saying I'd love to go through mine. Yeah, we can do yours. What's your What's your text again, James? 
Uh huh. Okay. And, uh, I'll give you what I had as I talked about it with Brian. I had an idea that might should change. But uh, my big idea was that God's children should follow their father's example of perfect love in sending his son to save sinners. Um, but my concern there, I think I need to include something of assurance. Because John isn't just commanding us to love, but commanding us to love in order that we would know we're born of God. In the context of first mm -hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was, maybe we can, that's the thing I need the most help with. I was just, yeah. it, it kind of, it's like nestled commands, like commands, yes. commands for assurance and the example well, of the gospel, like love in this way. Yes. I'm having a hard time nailing that down in a succinct way. Well, I think what he's saying is we should love one another. Yeah, John is very cyclical, right? So, of course, the command is to love one another um, because, God, because love is from God. In fact, God is love. All right, so then the flip side of that is if someone doesn't love them, then they're not from God. Again, John, I mean, John is very cyclical. cyclical. It's very, very difficult to nail him down like this. And then how do we know God's love? Because of Christ. Now, the end is interesting, right? So, verse 12, I think the point of that is no one has seen God, but people, but people see the way we love each other. And when people see the way we love each other, they see something of God, right? Or they, we could say maybe they see God. Um, uh, yeah, I was studying, it's uh, John one eighteen, known as ever seen God. Uh -huh. And then it goes into the incarnation. So now it seems like yes. God is incarnate, abiding us. Yes. That's how people see God now. It's kind yes. of a small paragraph, but maybe too many ideas. <laughs> John is like that. I mean, John just has a ton of ideas. Maybe something like I don't know, something like the God who the God who is love. The God who has called us call the God who has loved us calls us to love. The God who is love calls us to love. God, God calls us to show his love for others. So, something like that. This is, it's, again, this is a difficult text also, but uh, I, th I think you are onto it. I would just work to narrow it down a little bit more. But I think, I think I would find a way to fit verse 12 into it also in the way that God almost, like you said, re like incar incarnates himself through, through our love. Through love. That's an amazing thought. But yeah, I think you're getting there. You, Josh, mm -hmm. the reason I got the assurance is from 3, I think 314, like we know that we have come out of death to life because mm -hmm. we love the brothers. So like, because basically all of 1 John is kind of talking about the same themes. So mm -hmm. if you're preaching a few verses from it. Mm -hmm. How yep. much do you let the context of the book influence your main idea? From, yeah. All that, evidently. Yeah, they, I mean, you can faithfully preach First John and just talk about the theme of love. You can faithfully preach First John and just talk about the theme of light, the theme of darkness, the theme of worldliness, things like that, because John just keeps coming back to it. It's almost like 
it's just very different than Paul. It's like trying to interpret James the same way you interpret Paul, trying to interpret John the same way you interpret Paul just doesn't work. So I, I think it's I think it's fine in John to to bring in other ideas of love. Um, now, what you're seeking to do first is get the main idea of this text. So the main idea of this text is not necessarily going to be the main idea of your sermon. So we'll get to the proposition next. I would seek to say, what's the main idea of this text? Then the proposition can come in and nuance how you want to present that. Um, so yeah, I, I would work really hard to get down a one sentence summary of what this text alone says, and then work to build on that. But I think you're really getting there. I, I think, I, I really do. I think you're getting there. Well, thanks, that's, that's very helpful. Good, man. This is fun stuff. I. I mean, this is hard. Like sermon writing is not for the faint of heart. Sermon writing is not easy. If it was easy, everyone would do it. But trying to really, you don't. This is this is what we're doing. We're we don't seek to wrestle the text down. We don't seek to master the text. The, this process is born out of the text wrestling us down, and the text mastering us. And and as the text does that. Um, we are more able to, I mean, we, we're, we're, I think we're, we're only able to articulate the main ideas of the text as we experience the transforming power of the text or the FCF and the IRE, as we experience those, we're much more able to articulate them because it's something that it's not just on a page, something, not just what we hope happens, but something that happens to us. So of course, this is something you got to work on more, right? This is not something you're going to finish in class. This is something I would encourage you spend time after class reading your text over and over and over again. Spend a lot of time trying to understand your text more and more. Try to craft these sentences well. Think back on them again a few days later. But let's let's talk next the the next part of the proposition package. Okay. So we, we've talked about, um, we talked so far about the big idea, the fallen condition focus, the intended redemptive effect. When we put all of those together, we get the proposition. The proposition. So this is, this whole thing is the proposition package. So, so that the FCF, the big idea, the IRE, all of those are leading to the proposition. And in a real sense, we can't write the proposition until we know what the big idea is. This is when we really transition. This is where we really transition from text to sermon, right? We're transitioning from exegesis, from, from text study to sermon preparation. So the, the proposition, it's not a preposition, it's a proposition, it, it's a sh it's just a short statement that summarizes the sermon. A short statement that summarizes the, the sermon. It, if, if the big idea tells you what's the text about, the proposition tells you what's the sermon about. It's a statement that summarizes the text and how the preacher seeks to develop the text in the sermon. It doesn't just tell me what the text is about. It, it sets my expectations for how the sermon will use the text to address the pastoral needs of the church. We'd say it's a, we'd say it's a thematic statement, which addresses the FCF and the IRE. 
it's it's derived from the big idea from the fcf from the ire and seek it seeks to tell us both what the text means and what the sermon is going to call us to in light of the text. So uh, Jeff, Jeff Percival, once again, I'll, I'll quote him for us. This is his definition of it. So he says, the, the proposition is a single statement of what your sermon is about. Can you guys see my screen? Okay. The proposition is a single statement of what your sermon is about. It, encaps it encapsulates the meaning of the text, including both content and claim. Both the, the content of the, the text and the, as the IRE or the FCF, the claim, the, what, what it's pushing us towards, what it's pushing us to do or believe. And it directs the congregation so that they understand the meaning of this portion of God's word and its significance for their lives. Um, Brian Chappell says this in his book on page 143, since expository sermons answer, what does the text mean? And so what, so what does the text mean is, is what the text says. So what is, is application. It's the claim of the text. It's what the text calls us to do or believe the proposition that encapsulates the message should also show what is true and what to do. So it has two parts, what is true and what to do. And, and I, I think that's helpful. I, I, I like Chapel's book a lot. I, I think, I think sometimes it's a little bit too formal. I think sometimes it's, it, it doesn't transition well to maybe a younger generation or the way that, that we tend to, to think or communicate it summarizes both the text. This is, I think this is helpful. A short summary of both the text and the sermon, which naturally leads to an interrogative. So it leads us to a question. Well, once we hear it, we should be asking a question, right? And then that, that in turn leads us to an outline to our main points and our sub points. So it's a short summary of both the text and the sermon or I, I can change this up of how the sermon uses the text, which naturally leads to an interrogative, a short statement of how the sermon uses the text, which naturally leads to an interrogative. This is a, uh, a famous quote. You're going to see this in many preaching textbooks uh, about the importance of the proposition. I am, I am of the conviction that no sermon is ready for preaching until we can express its theme in short, pregnant sentence as clear as crystal. I find the getting of that sentence the hardest, the most exacting, and the most fruitful labor of my study. To compel oneself to fashion that sentence, to dismiss every word that is vague, ragged, ambiguous, to think one to think oneself through to a form of words which defines the theme with scrupulous exactness that is surely one of the most vital and essential factors of this of making the sermon and i do not think any sermon ought to be preached until that sentence has emerged clear and lucid as a cloudless moon 
I think that's excellent. That shows the, the importance of crafting this sentence. This is the most important sentence in your sermon. It tells in one sentence what the entire sermon is about. Um, the, the, common, the common test that's used uh, or the common uh, illustration that's used is the 3 a.m. test. If, if someone wakes you up at 3 a.m. and says, Emmanuel, what is your sermon about? You, you can't go on for three minutes like A.B. just did about what your sermon is about. You're not going to be able to remember it all. You, you have to be able to say it quickly, succinctly, in a way that makes sense. Right? You've got to be able to say quickly what, what the sermon is about. God's, God's great desire for us is not only that we would know the gospel truths, but feel the gospel truths. God's great desire for us is that we would not only know the gospel truths, but feel the gospel truths. God often works his pleasant purposes for us in the midst of difficult circumstances. God often works his pleasant purposes for us in the midst of difficult circumstances, things like that. So we, we, want, it, we, we want it to be functional. We don't want it to be artificial. We want it to be functional. And it should flow naturally from the, the big idea, the FCF, the IRE. And that, this is where we transition from exegesis to sermon crafting. We're no longer describing the text. We are now describing the sermon. It, it provides clarity for us in the meaning of the text and how the text is to be used in the sermon. So, um, this is how the sermon functions, or this is how the proposition functions. We, we said earlier that, that sermons are not just running commentaries on text, right? Sermons don't apply text all the ways that they could be applied. Sermons don't seek to extract from text every possible significance, exegetical and theological and pastoral. Sermons seek to say one thing. So, so in a very real sense, what I'm doing in my sermon is both exegeting the text and the proposition, or I'm exegeting the text through the lens of the proposition. The proposition serves me because it narrows my attention and my focus. I could talk about all kinds of things in the text, but unless I'm talking about the proposition, I'm not actually do I'm not actually advancing my argument. I'm not doing what I'm what I said I was going to do at the beginning of the sermon. So so it's it's it, it can be good to talk about all the different things that are in a text or apply the text in a bunch of different ways. But, but I'm not only seeking to explain my text, I'm seeking to explain my proposition as well. Does that make sense, what I'm saying there? The proposition comes from the text. I'm not, I'm not placing an artificial grid on the text, but I am, once I have that proposition, that comes from the text. It becomes the glasses that I wear in every sentence I write, in my outline, every way that I think about the text. It, the proposition becomes the way I view the text. So the proposition has to encapsulate all of the ideas of the text. 
And once it does that, it becomes the helpful grid to view the text in and to craft my sermon through. So uh, what, what makes a good proposition? This comes again from Jeff Perswell. Far better preacher than myself. Just taught me everything I know about preaching. Number one, it's accurate. And this is obvious, right? It seeks to be accurate. It seeks to communicate the ideas of the sermon, communicate the ideas of the text well. It doesn't, doesn't seek to be obscure. It seeks to be accurate, precise. It's not enough that it, it gets close. It needs to be exact. It needs to tell what the sermon is about and how the sermon will use the text. Um, next, it's, uh, it's single. Or we could say it's, uh, it's focus. It's focused. There's, there's one truth the proposition is about. It says something precisely. It only says one thing. It, it doesn't say three or four things. That's what your main points are for. Your main points will argue the proposition. But the proposition itself is focused. It's single. It's saying one specific thing. And from that one specific thing, I can write my entire sermon. But until I know what the one thing is that my sermon is trying to say, I can't write the sermon. It's like the thesis statement in your paper, right? So you're writing your biblical theology paper. Until you write your thesis statement, you don't actually know what your paper is about. You, you can't say, well, my paper is about the connection between Genesis 3 and Romans 16. Well, that doesn't, doesn't tell me what you're sure. It tells me kind of what's happening, but it doesn't tell me what you're arguing. It doesn't tell me what the connection is. Uh, some, something like um, you know, my, my paper argues that the church experiences the Satan crushing power the church, the church experiences Satan crushing power as in her union with Christ. Church experiences Satan crushing power in her union with Christ. Because the God of Christ, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, right? So that alludes to Genesis 3.15, of course. But I'm arguing something specific there. I'm not just saying there's a connection. I'm not being vague. There's a single idea. There's no doubt in people's minds where I'm going with this. Uh, number three, it's concise. It's concise. It's not long. It, it, this is the 3 a.m. test, right? 3 a.m., I don't have time to talk for paragraphs. I can, I can say something quickly. And, and it's important to remember that, that preaching is not a written skill. Preaching is not about writing. Preaching is about speaking. So what, what people don't have the ability to hear is because of the abundant love God has demonstrated in his propitiation through the this propitiation of our sins, through the substitutionary atonement of his son upon the cross, we must with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength follow him 
and be dedicated to his ways and purposes and will for our lives. Uh, someone hears that, um, but there was a lot to that sentence. No, something far better is God's love calls, God's love demands radical obedience. God's love demands holistic submission, right? It's concise. It's saying one thing. It's saying it accurately. It's saying it succinctly. So we want to do it. So that takes refining it, typing it again and again and again, and stepping away from it, coming back to it, letting it emerge from the text naturally as we continue to study it. And that gets to the next, to the next one. It's immediately understandable. It's immediately understandable. We, we, we want people nodding when we state the proposition. We want them nodding because one, they understand what we're saying. There's no doubt they understand what we're saying. And two, because they can see it in the text. When we talked about Romans 5, 8, Jesus' death proves God's love. All of you are like, yes, that's right. That's it. That's it. You understood what I was saying and you saw it right in the text. We, we don't want people scratching their heads saying, I don't, I, I understand what he's saying, but I don't see it in the text. Or I think I see in the text what he's saying, but he said it so quickly. It was so convoluted that I, I'm not exactly sure what he's arguing for. Uh, and then lastly, we wanted to immediately relate to our audience. We're going to immediately relate to our audience. So it's about us. We're, we're not going to mention Paul. We're not going to mention Barnabas. We're not going to mention Peter. We're not going to mention the original audience. We're not going to mention the author. We, we've left exegesis at this point, and we're in sermon crafting. So the big idea might mention characters. It might mention, I think, Mikey's big idea, it mentions the Israelites. It's fine. Or it might be Faisal's. I think it's Faisal's mentions the Israelites. It's fine. Your big idea can do that. Your proposition, however, needs to not mention specific people or characters in the text. It needs to be relatable. It needs to be something people hear and they say, oh, I, I need that. It needs to, there needs to be no confusion in people's minds that they say, this is something that I need and I want to listen to more. Saying something like, um, Paul's experience of God's grace resulted in submission to Christ. Well, good for Paul. That's great for him. Why am I here this morning? Again, sermons are not running expository commentaries. They seek to take the text and, and, and it seeks to have, have the text serve the pastoral needs of the church. And the proposition narrows our attention so that it can do it in a way that's immediately relatable and, and bridges the gap between ourselves or the text and the audience. It does it in a quick way so that people, people look at the text and they say, okay, I, I see how, how he got that. So then and with that, how do we present the proposition. How do we present the proposition in our sermon? Two ways. One, we make it explicitly stated. 
in the introduction. Or I guess I'll say explicitly stated, it doesn't have to be in the introduction, depending on the kind of sermon you're preaching of is deductive or inductive. And we'll talk more about those later. But when, when you do say it, which most of you will probably say in the introduction, though you can say it halfway through the sermon, you can say it towards the end of your sermon. There's different ways to structure or outline your sermon. But when you do say it, it needs to be clear. It needs to be clear. That, that's it. That Without saying the proposition for this sermon is... But people need to hear you say it and they need to know, okay, that sentence is important. If they're taking notes, they need to hear you say it and think, okay, I need to write that down. You need to say it in a way that people know what you're doing. So we can, we can pause, say it, pause again, repeat it. We can unpack it, say, say it in more than one way and then come back to it again. But kind of give it, Give it some time for people to understand that this is an important statement in the sermon. And then lastly, it should be frequently referenced. It should be frequently referenced. So it shouldn't be a, a sentence that we, we say and then we leave right away. Never come back to it. it should, we should give it time in our sermon. We, we don't want to say it's important and then not demonstrate it's important because we don't go back to it. We want our sermon to have unity and restating the proposition helps communicate the unity of it. It's a, it's a good place even between transitions. When you, when you transition from one main point to the next main point, revisiting the, the proposition is helpful in those times. Um. So let's, or I'll say one more thing. This is from Brian Chapel. He, he tends to form, let me say forms of the proposition. He, he tends to form in one and two ways. Okay. And I think this is very formal. And I think, I think it's a good place to start. And as you become a, more acquainted with writing these, you can, you can make them sound less formal, but, but he, he, he divides into two possible options. The first is consequential. So in that we're saying, because something, because this is true. And then the second is conditional. If then. So the first one, because truth, we must live it out, right? If truth, then how we live it out, right? And, and as you get better, you can, you can figure out your own ways to do this or make it less formal. But let's, let's look at a couple texts once again, okay? So let's look at Matthew 4. Matthew 4, okay? I want you to look at this with your group. We talked about the big idea. I want you to talk about the proposition. How might we form that into a propositional statement? Talk about that in your groups. So an if then or because we must statement. Same. We talked about the big idea, right? So the big idea, something in the effect of temptations shows his 
demonstrates his commitment to being our Messiah. Because he overcame temptation, we know that nothing will stop him from accomplishing God's purposes for him redeeming us from our sins. So if we were to talk about, uh, if we were to talk about a proposition or how that might serve a pastoral need, how might we, how might we phrase that? transition this to our context. So because of the microphone, whoever, who, whoever, yep, thank you. Sorry. Um, I was thinking uh, something of the Hebrews thought of he was like us in every way but without sin he proves that he's an eternal savior so something like because jesus remains steadfast in righteousness through his temptations we can know he is our savior yeah i i think so i think that's getting at it i mean that's it's not formalized of course but but you're getting at it that's exactly right. And then the text would seek to show, to demonstrate that. And, and then you can apply in those specific ways. But there's more than one, there's more than one way to do it. If you're, if you're thinking of Jesus as the, the better Israel, for instance, you, you could do it. Because Christ faithfully obeyed in our place, we must place our, our, place our exclusive trust in him. That's a faithful proposition based upon the big idea, right? You see, we're, we're doing sermon crafting now. We're asking what are the pastoral needs of the congregation? Like what James said is exactly right. But I think this is right also. I, I'm asking how does the text serve the pastoral needs of the church, which is a different question than what's the big idea. I, but I have to have figured out the big idea first. If I, if I try to do the proposition before figuring out the big idea, the FCF, the IRE, See, this is the culmination of all of those things we've been talking about, is this propositional statement. Or um, another, here's another. If Jesus is able to resist when tempted, then he is the only sure refuge in our own temptations. So again, I, I'm saying what's true, but I'm, I'm hinting at, I'm alluding to how the text will be applied in the sermon. So I, I can preach the text with more than one proposition. Well, I get the text can be with more than one proposition, right? Like Brian can preach it. James can preach it. Faisal can preach it. And all of us, the, the exegesis will sound the same, but the proposition can be different. Proposition doesn't have to be the same every time the text is preached. Depends on what's the past. Does that make sense? In presenting the preposition, we said in the in uh, number two, frequently referred or referenced. So, 
uh, do we frequently refer the preposition or the, the big idea or the main idea? Or both of them? Um, yeah. yeah, so so the question becomes how, how do, once we have this whole package, right? How, how do we, do we say the FCF in the sermon? Do we say the IRE in the sermon? Do we say the big idea? Do we say all five of these things in the sermon? I would say not necessarily. I, I think without a doubt you want you don't necessarily need to say the big idea. You don't necessarily need to see the, say the IRE or the FCF. Those things can be in your mind. The, the proposition, though, is the one statement that summarizes that, that if you don't say it, you'll often leave people confused. You, you can say the other ones, but you just don't have to. Let's uh before before we end for the day, let's let's look again. Let's look at Romans 5:8 again. And I want you to talk in your groups. You can make an if then statement or because since statement. God showed his love for us and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. So if you're going to make a proposition, so this includes what's what's true of the text. I think our big idea was Christ's death is proof of Christ's death is proof of God's love. How can we make a proposition statement from this? I want you to talk about that in your groups. Okay, so so what do you what what could we say would be a, a good proposition for this text, do you think? Yeah, Amy. Because God died for us while we were yet sinners, we know. Because Christ died for us while we were yet sinners, we know that God loves us. Good. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's true. Seek to make it a little bit more applicationally oriented. Um, I think I think there's more that could be said. What else? If we're if we're seeking to make oriented, okay. right? So we're not just trying to summarize the verse like the main idea. We're trying to apply it to our people. What might what might we say? Yeah, that's exactly right. Just to double click on that, I would probably uh, expound by saying, because Christ died for us while we were still sinners. When we are discouraged and doubting, we can have assurance that Christ loves us now. Yes, yes, I think that's right. I think something like that is good. Uh, I, I think I think so. I'm going to give you an example of a formal, a formal proposition as well as an informal proposition here. So a formal proposition would be this: If God loved us while we were sinners, we can be confident that His love will always endure. If God loved us while we were sinners, we can be confident that his love will. And you can preach this in more than one way, right? But I think that's a natural one. Is that if God loved us at our worst, then we can will always love us. There's nothing that will cause him to stop love. There's nothing we can do, nothing we can say, nothing we can think, nothing we can feel. He will always love us. And we know that because he loved us while we were sinners. So, and so... That I've been talking more about Brian Chapel's formal ways of doing it. 
an informal way, I, I think you could say it like this. God's love has never well. God's love has never failed and it never will. Now, now that's taking, again, that's taking this idea of the formal proposition. It's making it a little bit more accessible, a little bit easier to, to hear. It's a little bit more oratorily or, or, or orally if you're do it right. Orally if you're speaking it, orally if you're hearing it. Um, it. It's a little bit more pleasing to the ear, a little bit simpler to remember. Okay, let's. I know I said one more, but let's do. Let's still do one more, just to put press this in a little bit further. Ephesians one three through fourteen. So we we said the proposition or that big idea there was a call to worship God for how He's blessed us in Christ, right? A call to worship God for how He's blessed us in Christ. Three through fourteen. Think through how can we make a proposition. So it's what the text says and and how we how we plan to apply it in our sermon. Hey, it, Josh, tell us. Yep. A question that I think was confusing us with mm-hmm. the proposition is, should we be thinking of it as like a thesis statement, like the main argument we're trying to prove or our main mm-hmm. application to people? Yes. So, yeah. So it's both. It, it serves to do both. It's, it's what we're trying to prove, but also it's, it's the main point of the sermon, right? So the main point of the sermon is both going to be what the text says and how I plan on applying the text. So it sets, it sets people up for both. Okay, that makes sense. Thanks. Thanks. The, bi- the big idea, the big idea just seeks to summarize the text. The, prop- the proposition goes a step further and says, this is how the text will be brought to bear in the lives of God's people today. Okay, so last one, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. If you're going to write a proposition, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, how would you write it? What would it, what would it say? Okay, so we'll, we'll finish up today with this. What, what do you think, given the big idea, the FCF, the IRE, Everything we've through 14 so far, what would be a proposition for this text? Uh, we said, uh, because uh, Christ, God blessed us in Christ in all the spiritual blessing, we, then we must uh, worship him out of gratitude. That's great. That's, that's perfect. That's very well done. Good. Because uh, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ, we must find sufficiency in him. We can find our sufficiency in him. We should find Christ <clears throat> enough. We should find Christ enough. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I think, I think, I think the direct call of the text is to worship, right? But I think, I think you can, you can apply it that way. Uh, And that would be, and that would be fine. What were you going to say something, Mikey? Yeah, uh, I was about to use the same type of proposition they used, but like, can we make it more of a conditional by saying, if we have been 
uh, blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus, then we should praise and worship God because of that fact, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think we can say, like, this, this is the way I worded it. And I think that Emmanuel's out of gratitude is great. The, the only difference I have between his was I, I try to make it a little bit more uh, transparent where my applications are going which is because God has blessed us in Christ, we can worship him in every circumstance. Blessed us in Christ, we can worship him in every circumstance. Now, it doesn't have to be that. The text doesn't talk about circumstances. Now, if I were doing this, I would talk about Paul and his imprisonment for sure. But that's how I'm choosing to apply it. If you want to say with a heart of gratitude, right? Um, the gospel, the gospel, you know, that, that'd be kind of an informal one. The gospel produces gratefulness. Um, but if you want to, I, I was thinking, you know, with the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ, all of these are things that can't be taken away from us. And so no matter, no matter what happens to us, we can worship Christ. But I mean, there's more than one way to do it, right? There's more than one faithful way to do it. You guys are all hitting at the right ideas about the claim of the text or the, the truth of the text. It's, it's how to apply it that takes pastoral sensitivity and wisdom. And, you, and, you, and you'll continue to grow in that. But uh, great, that's everything for today.